0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Mark chapter number two, beginning in verse 13. And the inspired word of the Lord reads, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, uh, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard of it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. If there is a a truth in Christianity um, that we would do well to remember as we grow um, in our understanding of who Jesus is, is, it's simply that Jesus will not fit inside of your mold. That's the truth. Jesus will not fit inside the mold that you have for him. He will not fit the box that you might try to put him in. Jesus doesn't conform to our opinions of him. He does not bend to our preconceived notions of how things should be. He, does not, he is not confined by our sense or our ideas of what reality really is because Jesus, you know, the uh, uh, Jesus of the scriptures here tears down all of our stereotypes. Jesus continually, you know, does things that surprises people, right? He destroys the status quo. He does not fit into anybody's preconceived mold. And, and that's what we see, as seen in this text so far, um, in the first chapter and a half of, of, of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus doesn't conform to anybody's expectations. He's always doing what's unexpected, If you remember, Mark begins with the declaration that Jesus is the divine son of God that comes to earth. And if there was something that the people of Israel was expecting, it was not that. They were not expecting for God to become man and come to the earth. But yet here it is. In the text. And then John the Baptist, this wild-haired, crazy-eyed man wearing, you know, camel's skin, eating locusts and wild honey, and he's preaching and he call, he's calling people to repent of their sins, and he's baptizing them in preparation of meeting the Messiah, right? And he says, And, and after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm un, not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? And so there's this big expectation of the Messiah coming. And how does the Messiah, the, the Savior of Israel, show up in the story? Does he come riding on a noble steed? Nope. Does he come following in a long procession of a victorious parade? Nope. Is he wearing royal robes that identify him as the sovereign of the universe? Not even close. Right? Does he come down from heaven floating, you know, so that people know that it's no. Right? He shows up as a nobody from nowhere. Right? In fact, Mark says in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus was an unknown carpenter's son from a little backwater town in an unknown part of Judea, and he shows up as a nobody. Right? But, but nobody actually knew who he was until, until John actually saw him. John knew, right? But, but really, by outward appearances, he was a nobody from nowhere. Right? He wasn't anything that anybody expected. And then he comes to John the Baptist and, and he does something completely unexpected. You know, he asks John to baptize him. In fact, we, we find in the, gospels, uh, the other gospel accounts that John protests because it didn't seem right even to him that, that, that Jesus should be baptized by him. Right? Jesus had no sin. He had no need to repent of anything. He was perfect. In fact, John says, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you going to come to me for, for me to baptize you? Right? But Jesus insisted, because, because in his amazing display of grace, Jesus, through his baptism, is identifying himself with us, broken sinners, because ultimately he's going to, to take our place. Right? And then, when he comes up out of the water, something unexpected and incredible happens. The, the, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the Father, God the Father, speaks from heaven, says, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Again, nobody was expecting that for sure. And then he leaves for 40 days, goes out in the wilderness, and he's tempted by the devil. And then he comes back, and he begins his ministry, proclaiming that the time is now, and the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel, which, again, was was different because what they expected the Messiah to be, most people expected the Messiah to be someone who was going to be this conquering military hero who was going to ride into, into, into Israel and drive out the Roman army and restore the earthly kingdom of Israel back to worldwide power. That's what they expected. But here Jesus is declaring that the time has arrived and that the kingdom of heaven is already here, a kingdom that's not of this world. Right? And he says, the way into that kingdom is to repent and believe the gospel. Again, this is not what people were expecting. And Jesus didn't, right, he didn't take this message immediately to the most important city of Judea. You would expect that that's where he would have started. Everybody would have expected he would have started in Jerusalem, but he didn't. He preaches his message in the backwater towns of Galilee. And then he calls his, his first disciples to follow him, but he doesn't go to the temple and he doesn't go to synagogues to find the most educated and religious elite people to follow him. He doesn't come and, and debate them and, and help them and convince them that he's the Messiah. No, he goes and he finds four working class people, four fishermen who give up everything to, you know, on the spot to follow him. And then Jesus goes to a synagogue and he's invited to, to uh, read the scripture and preach and then he surprises everybody because he preaches a message that shocks everyone. In fact, it says they were astonished by his teaching for he taught them with one who had authority, not as the as, as scribes. So here, here it is, a nobody from nowhere, this person that nobody really even heard of is, is preaching a message of, 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 with the authority of God himself, right? That even the best known preachers in the world wouldn't even preach, and then, and then to validate his authority, right? A man shows up with his demon possessed, and Jesus simply by a command of his voice says to shut up and get out, and the demon leaves. Again, something that people didn't expect. Then they leave the synagogue. They go to Peter's house, and Peter heals his. I mean, uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And the next thing you know, Jesus is is healing people, and he's casting out demons uh, in Capernaum and all over. Uh, the, the, the region of Galilee, and, and all the while he's preaching the gospel, the good news, and he's drawing huge crowds wherever he went. Then he comes back to Capernaum, and the crowds still follow him, so much so that he goes to Peter's house, and the house fills up, and there's not even enough room for people to, to get in the door, and somebody shows up with, with a friend of theirs who's a paralytic, and they can't even get close to Jesus to get him healed, and so they begin to tear the roof off of Peter's house, and as the dirt and the debris come falling in, on everyone, including Jesus, interrupting his preaching, Jesus doesn't do what we'd expect him to do. He doesn't rebuke them and say, what are you doing, right? You're tearing this guy's house up. No, he has compassion for this man, right? And then, you know, if that's not surprising enough, Jesus doesn't say what they would expect him to say. They'd expect him to say, well, you're healed, right? That's what they would expect for him to say, but no, he says something completely different. He says, your sins are forgiven, right? A statement that shocks everyone. Because because who can forgive sins but God Himself, which is clearly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming not to have only the power over creation through healing and power over the spiritual world by casting out demons. He was claiming the divine power of forgiveness of sins. And He proves it, you know, that He has this power when He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive, um, authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus will not fit into our mold. He will not conform to our expectations. And we're going to see that this continues in the text today because because once again, we will see Jesus do something that will surprise everyone. People will expect for Jesus to behave a certain way and and they will think that he's going to act a certain way, but he's going to do something that nobody expects. And when he does, he reveals the nature of who he is. And he also reveals the nature of how hard people's hearts are. And the reason why people are surprised by his behavior is because people's hearts are hard. Now, understand, before we rush to judgment of these people in the story, I wanna call you all to examine your own hearts because there's a good chance that our own hearts can be at least a little bit hard. Because when we read a story like this, many of us are gonna to bring to the table, we're gonna to bring to this, to this story a perspective how we think Jesus ought to behave and act. But when we examine the story a little closer, we actually might find that we've been trying to get Jesus to fit inside of a little little box of our imagination, only to discover that he's not going to fit there. And so it's important that when we read a story like this and examine it, we do so with humility and with openness to what the text actually has to say, allowing the text to speak for itself. So again, let's look at verse 13, and we'll walk through it. He went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So, again, Jesus, after healing the paralytic man, he continues his public ministry uh, around the Sea of Galilee, and everywhere he goes, crowds show up and they follow him because he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's forgiving sins, right? That's what we find him doing, right? And, 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 he's, and he's also, it says, teaching them. He's proclaiming the gospel. That is the reason why he came, is to proclaim the gospel. And then it says, right, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now this right here, this is a verse, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is something you've heard many times, right? You've probably heard messages preached on this before, and you kind of have this picture. He comes up, he says, follow me, and he follows him, right? But what you need to realize is that if we were first century Jews, or if we were first century Gentiles in Judea at the time, right, we would have been, we would have been absolutely shocked by, by what Jesus did, right? Or if we would have read this in the first century or heard about this in the first century, we would have been stunned. We'd have been like, what? He did what? I mean, because, because in this verse, right, people here were not expecting something like this to happen. This was, beyond, this was so far outside of what they were expecting to, for Jesus to do, it was shocking. And it was shocking for a number of reasons. First of all, what we under, need to understand is who Levi is. Okay, Levi actually was known as Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. He eventually becomes one of the 12 apostles, um, and he is the person who eventually writes the Gospel of Matthew, which is kind of shocking itself. But but we were introduced to him in this story by the name of Levi, and he is a tax collector. And again, we don't like tax collectors either, but we need to understand that for the Jewish community at this time, he was considered to be the worst of the worst kind of sinner, on par with murderers and rapists. I mean, that's how they viewed tax collectors. Because, because you have to understand, it, being a tax collector means you worked for the hated, oppressive government. You either it worked directly for Rome, or you worked for King Herod, who was a local ru- ruler set up by Rome, so you still worked for Rome. And, and you collected taxes on the behalf of this oppressive government from your own people, from your own family, so to speak. And so this was actually seen as an act of treachery. This was considered to be, to be, um, to, to basically, to be, um, to be, you're a traitor if you're a tax collector. And, and to make things worse, right, the government, the way they, they set this up is basically, you were allowed to collect whatever tax you wanted to as long as the government got what they wanted, right? So the government said, hey, you you take 10%, then you set it at 20%. Whatever you wanted to do, you had the right to do as long as the government got their share. And so tax collectors were notorious for gouging people because that's how they made their living. In fact, many of the, the rabbis in that culture basically gave people permission to lie to tax collectors. They said, you can lie to these guys right, about what you actually have. They overcharged people in their taxes, and so they were not only traitors, but they were considered oppressive thieves as well. They were hated. They were despised. No self-respecting Jew would be friends with a tax collector. Tax collectors weren't weren't allowed to be a part of normal Jewish life anymore. They certainly couldn't go to the temple, and they couldn't even come to the, the local synagogue. They were not allowed in. And, and most people wouldn't even let them in their houses because, because they believed that their home would become unclean by them. Tax collectors were seen as the worst, kind of worst sinners. In fact, think about it this way. Imagine your, your stereotypical drug dealer, right? A person who preys on other people's weaknesses, right? A person who gets rich by enslaving other people on poison, right? That's bad. But then you think about a drug dealer who then sells the worst kind of drugs to elementary school kids. That's worse. That's kind of what I'm talking about here. Right? Tax collectors were seen you know, as a pariah. Right? They were in that looked upon in that kind of light. They were absolutely despised and hated by their own people. But then Jesus right, comes along. He's preaching the gospel and walks up to this man, Levi, and says, follow me. I wonder how many people would have fainted in that moment. Because think about this. Right? This no good, double crossing, selfish, greedy, extorting, pathetic excuse of a human being, Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is scandalous. This, is, this would have been jaw dropping. Not only does Jesus have the power to forgive sins, but he offers forgiveness of sins to the worst of the worst kind of sinners. I hope you understand that. He offers forgiveness to the worst kind of sinners. I mean, not only does he forgive sins, but he forgives the worst kinds of sins, which means no one, no one is beyond redemption. No one is so bad in their life that, that God can't forgive them. I not you to think about that. No one is so corrupt that God can't, doesn't have the power to forgive them. That is the scandal of Grace. That's the part of grace that doesn't make sense to us. The fact that Jesus would would save you, you know who you are, is scandalous to the same degree. And everyone present in this moment would have been shocked by what Jesus did. Everyone in the first century reading this would have been shocked by what, what Jesus did in this story. Jesus offered forgiveness to the worst kind of sinner. I mean, you might as well have been offering forgiveness to a serial rapist. Or, or even a serial killer, by the way, who remembers the son of Sam, right? David Berkowitz. I mean, cold-blooded, murdered like 12 people, right? Born-again Christian in prison. You know, has no desire to, to be paroled. He wants to spend his life in prison, you know, sharing the gospel with people, right? Scandalous, right? He might as well, you know, have, have forgiven the worst of the worst like that. Jesus offered forgiveness to the worst kind of sinners, and and make no mistake, I want you to hear me on this. That's what he was offering him, was forgiveness. When he came to Levi, he said, follow me. Jesus was offering him forgiveness. He followed Jesus because he had heard the gospel. Like Andrew, Peter, James, and John, he had heard the gospel. And upon hearing the gospel, he repented and believed the gospel. And as a result, he was instantaneously converted, you have to understand that we, you, know, you see this, you, you, you see oftentimes we will read this text and we will forget that, that this verse has a context to it. We will read this story you know, and almost imagine that Jesus walks up to Levi out of the blue, like never even been introduced before, and say, follow me, and Jesus casts a little magical spell and he follows him. Right? That's not at all how, how this works. He, he had heard about the miracles of Jesus. How could he not? Right? And he knew who Jesus was because everybody in that region knew who Jesus was. And he'd heard the message of the gospel that Jesus was preaching. In fact, Jesus was just preaching just before he walked up to Levi. And so he'd heard that Jesus could forgive sins and he heard that Jesus was calling people to repent and believe the gospel. And, and Levi knew what, what Jesus was all about. And he followed him. And so he heard that Jesus could forgive sins and he was willing to go where Jesus wanted Levi the sinner was offered the forgiveness of his sins through repentance and faith in Christ with with which he took great joy because he had been converted. He was a new believer. He was miraculously transformed into something new. That's why he would follow Jesus because think about this. Levi had a lot to lose. I mean, why would anybody in the world Choose to be a tax collector at that time to be one of the most decisive people in in the entire world. Why would anybody do something like that? Money. Simple as that. It was the money. Tax collectors made lots and lots and lots of money. It was one of the easiest ways for people to get rich at the time even even though that it had a high social price on it tax collector and jobs was actually pretty well highly sought after because you could become instantly wealthy doing so and when you are dirt poor in an oppressed poor world right and money makes a difference between life and death being rich actually can sound pretty good and be very tempting i mean why do people sell drugs today money why do people go to organized crime it's money why do people start check cashing businesses that charge crazy amounts of interest in poor neighborhoods that everybody knows is a dirty way to do business? Why would people do that? It's money, right? Or why do liquor stores sell alcohol to people that they know that they can see that that person is addicted and they're killing themselves but they continue to still sell them the alcohol, why? It's money. Money is a huge motivation. It is now and it certainly has it was back then. And Levi, as a tax collector, had a, a great living. He had everything basically he ever wanted. As a tax collector, he, you know, he, 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 he was despised by his community, but he, he was willing to do that for the money because he could be rich. And so he did have a lot to lose. But after hearing the gospel and after being convicted of his sins and after hearing about the forgiveness you know, offered through Christ, he obeyed Jesus' call to repent of his sin and walk away from his old life and believe the gospel because that's what repentance is it's turning away from your old sinful life and turning towards God in faith which is exactly what levi did levi left all he had to follow christ and that is the fruit and the evidence of his conversion levi or matthew got saved and 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 he is leaving his old life behind to follow his new master. And once you, once you kind of wrap your head around that, then the, the rest of this text will make a whole lot more sense. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. In this text, what we see is Jesus is at Levi's house, Having, having dinner, right? That's what it means to recline at table. When you read that, it's, it's a weird expression. But the reason why they say it that way is because in the first century, Jews sat around a little table about that high, right, off the floor, and everybody sat on, on cushions, you know, on the floor, and people kind of leaned back and relaxed, and, and it was just kind of like a, um, a personal experience when you ate dinner with someone. It was really kind of a close-knit, you know, around a short table, you know, that's why they called it reclining at table. But that's the idea, that Jesus was sharing a meal with these people, and what you need to realize is this is not, but this is not simply a, a casual dinner, though. This isn't just, hey, come over for some burgers, you know, and, and, and I'll grill up a, a few hot dogs. This isn't just a little get-together. This is more than that. In fact, Luke's gospel um, records the event this way. He says, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. This is not some small, intimate dinner with a few friends. This was a feast. And the reason why that was a feast is because this was a celebration. Levi's life had changed. He woke up that morning and he went to work, the same person he'd been his entire life, and then he comes in contact with Jesus Christ. He hears the gospel, repents of his old life, and puts his faith in Christ, and he becomes somebody new. Matthew left his house, the same old person, and he came home a new creation. He is born again. He is brought from death to life. His sins have been forgiven. The wrath of God that was on his head no longer is hanging over him. And he, the worst kind of sinner, has been called to follow Jesus. He was once a slave to sin, and now he's free. His life has radically changed. His nature has radically changed. He is no longer the man that he once was. He is new in Christ. And so, of course, they celebrated. Salvation should always produce in us a celebration. Even in the darkest days of your life, salvation should always produce in you a a, a joy. Hear me. Salvation, if we truly understand what's taking place in the life of a believer, is always a reason to celebrate. In fact, they celebrate in heaven, it says, because of salvation. Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Levi repented and believed the gospel, and so there was a celebration in heaven, and now there was a celebration on earth at his house. But this is not only a celebration, this was also an introduction. Because our salvation should, should not only produce a celebration, but it should produce in us a sense of urgency to introduce other people to Christ. Levi, the worst, worst kind of sinner, right, had found forgiveness and new life through Christ, and he now had an opportunity to share Jesus with the only group of people that, that really would have anything to do with him. Other tax collectors and sinners all who are outcasts like him. He finds salvation, and his natural reaction is to then go share that hope with other people. And again, hear me on this, church. <clears throat> salvation should always produce in us a contagious kind of joy that urges us to share. It should produce in us a gratitude and a compassionate heart that leads us to introduce other people to Jesus Christ. And so this dinner is, it was a celebration for sure. It was also an introduction, but it was also his farewell. Because Levi was leaving his old life behind to follow Jesus. He had been radically transformed by the gospel. He was leaving his old sinful but very lucrative life behind. And now he was going to follow Jesus wherever Jesus went. And again, this is a very excellent picture of repentance. It's a turning away from sin and turning towards Christ and following him. Any person who experiences Christ's saving grace does so through repentance and faith. Salvation, the new birth, changes your heart and it changes your affections. And that, in turn, motivates you to repent and turn away from your old life and your sin. You turn towards Christ in faith and trust and follow him. It's really the fruit and the evidence of your salvation. Levi's reaction was to demonstrate that, that he was indeed saved by his repentance and faith. He was giving up his entire life to follow Christ. Now, I know that Peter and Andrew and James and John also gave up, you know, a lot too. They gave up their jobs and their family. But, but understand, the truth is, they could always go back to what they were doing. They could always go back to their old life. In fact, they did for a while. When Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, Peter and the gang went back fishing again. And Jesus found them there on the shore. That's why they, he, he called them in to, to have breakfast with him. That's when he tells Peter that, hey, you're going to be crucified someday, but you still need to feed my sheep. In fact, I think it's a great story if you want to read. It's John chapter 21. But for Levi, the, the, the chances of him going back to his old career were slim to none. There's really not any chance that because not only, first of all, when he left his job, there would be somebody right there to take it. Right? These are sought after jobs. Right? The moment he would have left his job, somebody would have been there to take that to take his position. Secondly, his heart was changed. How could he go back now and extort money out of of his people again? So really, he left it all behind and he gave up his entire life to follow Christ and it was a clear indication that his faith was real. Now, fortunately for us, we don't have devious livelihoods that we're called to basically leave behind. I don't think any of us are drug dealers. I hope not. Please Praise the Lord, not. But we're not called to have to leave behind everything we know and everybody we know to follow Jesus. But, But let me ask you a question Has your life changed since you have met Christ? Do you see repentance in your own life? Do you now hate the sin that you used to love? Do you now love the holiness that you used to despise? And I ask this question because, because real faith, real faith is always accompanied by repentance. Right? That's the message that Jesus preached from the very, very beginning, and that's the fruit of what you see in Levi's life. Does your life bear repentance, the fruit of repentance? Because let me tell you, right, as lovingly as I can, and right, I want to be as straight with you with all the compassion that I can muster in my, in my heart, there there is no salvation without repentance. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. They are two sides of the same coin. And I say that because there are thousands of people who come to church in the United States of America, and they profess to believe in Jesus Christ, and the, and the, but they still live, and they still revel in their same sins. Their hearts have not changed. They just have a Jesus sticker on their car. The nature is still the same. They've not been brought from death to life. They don't hate their sin. They, they, they don't see a need for holiness in their lives. And this, this terrifies me and breaks my heart. Because you know what's worse than a lost person going to hell? A lost person who believes that he is a Christian stepping off into eternity thinking that he's going to be okay only hear Jesus say the words, away from me, you lawless one. I never knew you. That prospect crushes me. It's a truth that really keeps me up at night. And I don't want anyone that I know to experience that. I don't want anyone in my church family to ever face that reality. I want everyone to be truly converted and saved. I want to to see every one of you in heaven. And that's why I'll always continue to call everyone to examine your hearts. Like Paul says, Paul says, examine yourselves to see if, whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Well, what is the test? The test is this. Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ? Does your life bear the evidence of faith and repentance? Now, your life doesn't have to dramatically change like Levi. <laughs> Let's just be really, really clear, all right? But your life should exhibit some fruit. Again, if Christ is in you, right, then the sin that you used to love, you will begin to hate. You might still struggle with it, but you will begin to hate it. And the holiness that you used to despise, you will begin to cherish. It. You will desire to want to walk in obedience with with God. Not to say that you'll do it perfectly, but you'll desire it. And I'm not saying that your life has to be perfect because it won't be, right. But is your life different? Has your life changed since you met Christ do when you sin because you will when you sin do you feel the conviction of that sin and does that motivate you to repent and keep repenting has your life changed is a question that I ask and I will continue to ask and always ask because I always want to make sure that every one of us has an authentic faith and we see that Levi did he repented and believed. And that's why he was having this feast with Jesus as the, as the guest of honor. But, but everybody, but not everybody, was in a festive mood, right? We see in verse 16 that uh, there are some people that are kind of upset about this. It says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the thing is, is Jesus having a meal with these people just for the regular culture of the time would have been scandalous by itself to the jews this would have been this would have been offensive right just to the regular common jew this would have been offensive offensive offensive. but this was particularly abhorrent to these men because they were among the religious elites right These were men who took their relationship with God very seriously and they were obeying, they they took obeying the law seriously and they took sinning against God seriously and they made it their mission to live out the written law, but also the oral traditions that were really a bunch of extra rules to help people to live by the written law. And so they were serious about ritual purification, which means they wanted to be clean. They never wanted to be um, unclean, so to speak. So they washed their hands before they ate. They washed their, their dishes. They followed all the prescribed laws. They avoid touching people that were sick. They didn't go anywhere near dead bodies, so they become uh, ritually impure. And they would never even enter the house of a sinner or a tax collector, much less sit down and actually have a meal with them. And so, so this was, what Jesus was doing was unthinkable, right? And, and, and just as shocking, right, this is just as shocking to them as Jesus' claim to be, to be able to forgive sins. That's the, the level of shock that they would have experienced because, because if he, God, right, if he was God, then he certainly wouldn't be eating and, and communing with people like, like these because eating with these people was a sign that they were accepted. And how could Jesus accept such debauched, vile people? How could he allow himself to identify with such shameful people? And more than that, table fellowship or eating a meal together with someone in such an intimate experience, um, it, was, it was thought to contaminate other people. That if you had dinner with them, that it was, it was thought to make you unclean, that you were ritually impure then. Their whatever icky stuff was, was, was clinging to you. And so if Jesus is who he said he was, then, then, then he couldn't possibly allow himself to break the law and become unclean. And so this right here ends up being the second of five conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders, which will ultimately come, uh, um, will come together by chapter 3, um, and, and the Pharisees will then decide, you know what, we're going to kill him, because, because Jesus is just not fitting within our mold. That's really what it comes down to. Now, here is a place where all of us can make a mistake, though. Because now that we've been following along with the story, and we have seen Jesus, he's rescued the worst of the worst kind of, of sinners, and there's this celebration because, Levi's of, because of Levi's repentance and faith, and other sinners are now getting a chance to meet Jesus and hear the gospel, and the Pharisees, you know, they're not liking what's happening because they think they're better than than these sinners and because of that right because of what we know so far in the story it's going to be really easy for us to begin to build a box around jesus and anticipate what he might be getting at here and what he might actually do next but you know there's a temptation for us to try to begin to fit jesus into our own notions of in our own mold and because of that we'll begin to project our own ideas here into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. And do you know why I know that we do that? It's because this right here is the text for so many non-Christians and Christians alike. They will take this text and they will use it and say, see, Jesus, he's a friend of sinners and he didn't judge them like those other rotten self-righteous people do. You ever heard that before? Have you ever thought that before? That this is about Jesus favoring the, 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 the outright sinners over religious people. Because that's how many people, that's how people interpret this passage. They, you know, yeah, Jesus, right? He was cool with sinners, but he didn't like those religious people. Right? So it's better to be an open, you know, honest sinner than a religious hypocrite, is what they, is how they apply this text. But this is, this is the point that many people come to that somehow Jesus loves these sinners more than he loves the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you right now, if that's what you see in the text, right, you're seeing it incorrectly. You are bringing with you a bias to the text. Whether you realize it or not, you're bringing with it a preconceived idea that you're reading into the text, because that's not the point. Remember what, remember Jesus, he's not going to fit inside of our mold. We need to be prepared in a moment like this to set aside what we think the text is saying and put away the box that we're trying to squeeze Jesus into and read the text and see what God is actually saying here. And so in verse 17 it says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are, well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call righteous, but sinners. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, Well, you know what? They're better than you. At least they're honest, you hypocrite. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know I like them more than I like you. They're actually more fun to be around you bunch of, you know, stiff-necked religious people. Let's be honest, right? You make me sick, you self-righteous, you know, mean-spirited. No, it's not what he says. He just simply recites to them a very well-known Jewish proverb. This is something that... That when he said, they all knew what, kind of what he was talking about. That those who, ha- who are well have no need of a physician, and those who, but, but those who are sick. It's pretty straightforward, right? It, and it's pretty easy to follow the logic here. These sinners are obviously, these sinners are obviously spiritually sick in need of help. Right? And this is something that the Pharisees would have completely agreed with. Right? And, and this is something that, that, that even the sinners themselves would have agreed with. Nobody would have, would, have, would have doubted his logic here. They would have all agreed that spiritually speaking, the sinners we in a desperate situation, and, 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 and their brokenness and their sin was, was out in the open for all to see. And so Jesus follows that up with, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus gives him a very clear picture of his mission. He came to save sinners, and these people he had dinner with were obviously sinners. But I want you to really hear what he's saying here. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And and this is important because the Pharisees' problem is not that they didn't have the right view of these people's sin. It's not that they were incorrect about the fact that these people were sinners, because they were. They were the worst kinds of sinners. They were not good people. These were not noble people who just did a couple of things wrong. These were wretched people. They were broken sinners who committed all kinds of ungodliness. They just gave up on pretending. And so their view of these people was not the problem. Their view of these people is not the issue. Their problem was how they saw themselves. Because Jesus said, I came not to call righteous but sinners. And they immediately identified themselves as righteous. That's their problem. They immediately thought of themselves as people that didn't need any help. They believed that they were righteous because of their own efforts. They thought they were righteous because of their observance to the law. So they saw no need for salvation. They thought their own efforts was going to save them. Which brings us to the main point, which is the truth that before you can receive salvation, you must understand that you need salvation. That's the point. If you don't know that you're sick, you're not gonna go to the doctor. Sometimes when you're sick, you, you still don't go. If you don't know that you're sick, you're not gonna take the medicine. If you don't know that you have chemothera- I mean, if you don't know that you have cancer, you're not gonna take chemotherapy. If you don't believe that you need to be saved, you will not turn to Christ. That's the point. You see, before you can turn to Christ and receive him, you must acknowledge that there's something wrong with you. You must acknowledge that you're broken. We must acknowledge our sin. Otherwise, we won't turn to Christ. Otherwise, we won't repent and believe the gospel and follow Jesus. That's why postmodernism is so dangerous. Because in this postmodern world, people believe that everyone's basically good. (laughs) Like that one character. Everybody, 99.9% of people, basically good. We tell it, people will tell each other, I'm a good person, you're a good person. People are basically good people. They tell each other that, right? And so people then didn't, didn't come to this understanding is, is what they need then is, is, I just need a little help. I just, I just need a little adjustment. I just need a little makeover to be a better version of who I really am. Not realizing we need to be completely transformed into something else. And because they don't understand that, that they are depraved, And that they're not good people who occasionally do bad things, but they're sinners who really do the good things that they do by the grace of God. That they simply have no reason really to authentically come to Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. There are people that, that think they're good people that still are religious and they believe that they love Jesus but their faith ultimately proves to be inauthentic because they can't find it in themselves to repent of anything. And they don't have a heart or the courage to pick up their cross daily and follow Christ because if you've been a Christian very long at all, you will know that being a Christian is not an easy life. You don't come to Christ because he makes your life easier. You come to Christ because you need to be saved. We means to understand the greatest problem isn't a lack of money and it's not a lack of peace or health or talents or friendship. Our greatest problem is our sin. And that's the difference here. These sinners knew they were sinners. Levi knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed forgiveness. He knew he needed to repent and trust in Christ. But these Pharisees couldn't see that their righteousness, their righteous acts couldn't change their corrupt, sinful hearts. And so because of that, they saw no need to repent and no need to turn to Christ. That was their problem. And so Jesus was not, you know, favoring one group over another he was simply responding to those who could see their need right and because of that this is where we must check our assumptions about what's happening here because a lot of people will misunderstand this in this text and many people will think that just because Jesus was a friend of sinners meant that somehow right that Jesus isn't calling them out or that he's not judging their their sin because let's be clear just because Jesus was eating dinner with these sinners did not mean he condoned their sin. That is, you cannot equate the two of those. That's not the truth. Jesus never, ever, 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 ever condones sin. He never redefines it. And his love for these people and his compassion for them and his willingness to be around them should be an example to us, but, but doesn't prove otherwise. In fact, we need to remember the context here. Jesus begins his ministry declaring what? repent and believe the gospel, right? Repent and believe the gospel. And, and that's the, the message that Levi heard, and I promise you, if he had a chance to talk to those people and ask what was going on with Levi, he would tell them he repented and believed the gospel, and you should repent and believe the gospel. Now, on the other hand, in this story, it does not indicate that Jesus does not like Pharisees. The fact that Jesus spent, you know, the fact is Jesus had, in, in certain, some of these stories, he does spend time with them. He talks with them. Right? He even meets privately with this Pharisee named Nicodemus. If you remember John chapter 3, the very famous you know, verse where we hear about you must be born again and for God so loved the world. Right? And, and, and some of the Pharisees actually came to faith in Christ. In fact, Joseph of Marathia was the, was the man who had a tomb that Jesus was laid in. And he was a Pharisee in the high, the high court there and became a believer. And so to be honest, Jesus actually had more in common with the Pharisees than you might even realize. He had a similar view of theology. He had a similar view of scripture and its inerrancy and its authority. Jesus had the same view as God's holiness as the Pharisees and he certainly had the same or similar view of the resurrection because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The the Sadducees didn't. So he was not going to fault the Pharisees for their devotion for God. So I want you to understand that. He was not looking down on them for their devotion to God. He was not looking down on them for their desire to be obedient to God. The issue was, was not what their intentions were. The issue was their hearts were unchanged. Their hearts were hardened to the gospel by their self-righteousness. Just like many sinners' hearts are hardened by their love for sin. Both reject God in fact notice it doesn't say that all the sinners at the dinner had you know that that the Christ had with them that it didn't say that all of them believed it doesn't say that so some of these people and maybe even many of them left the dinner probably unchanged and went back to their old lives and so it's important for us to look at this story you know and 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 not to develop prejudices against either the sinners or the Pharisees here. What we need to see in this text is the same thing we need to see in everyone else around us, be they an outright sinner or a self-righteous false convert. We need to see in them broken sinners desperately in need of a Savior. That's how we don't judge unfairly. People are, people who have hearts as hard as stone is who they are. And they need their hearts to be changed. And what we need to remember is only God. Only God's going to change hearts. And our part in this whole thing and this mission that we're called to is to love people like Jesus was doing here. He just demonstrated. You want to know how it is to love people? Right here. They are people that you don't agree with, you don't like, they're not like you, but you're going to love them and associate with them and fellowship with them and be good to them. So we need to love them, but we also need to pray for them and share the gospel with them and then trust God to do the rest. Our job isn't to prejudge who or who may not receive the gospel, because I promise you, you don't know. You just don't know that answer. Our job is to be full of grace and truth to everyone we meet regardless of who they are like Jesus. Which means we need to love the worst of the worst kind of sinners as well as the self-righteous jerk that looks down on everyone else. And so as we close I just want to exhort you to three things. There are three applications I'd like you to think about um, that I think that we can make out of this text. Number one as always, I think I think we all need to examine ourselves. Examine our own hearts to see if we're in the faith. Examine like do we, have we really truly do we understand what it meant to repent and believe the God, we, are we really leaning on Christ? Are we kind of like thinking we're leaving on Christ, but we're we're leaning on our, our self righteousness and the things that we do? Or if you're or are you just a rebel who's just refused to accept Christ? But the answer is always the same. Number two is repent and believe the gospel. Remember, repentance and faith are um, present tense um, imperatives, which means we continue to repent and believe, repent and believe. We are saved eternally the moment we repent and believe, but a life then that is saved will produce repentance and faith. Number three, you've got to make it your mission to show the love and respect and compassion for everyone you come in contact with. And I'm going to tell you, like, like, so, this application of all the applications that, that, are, that are pertinent, this one turns around and points right here, okay? So you, I mean, I, I, I'm gonna own this. Right? We need to show compassion for every, everyone that you come in contact with, from the lowest to the low, to the stinkiest of the stinky, to the most annoying of the annoying, to the most uncomfortable of the uncomfortable. Right? We need to, to love them And share the hope of Christ with him. And number four, this is, I said three, but there's a bonus one. We must always be mindful to not try to squeeze Jesus into our own little mold. Right? Because he's not going to (laughs) fit. Jesus will never fit inside the mold you put him into. Jesus will always, always uh, destroy the status quo. Let me pray for you. Father, I love your word, and I love that your word convicts my heart, but I also love the fact that your grace is for even the worst of the worst, which means there's hope for me, because I admit, Lord, I've been, I've been, I've been horrible in my life many, many times. I know firmly who I am. I know what, what I'm capable of, Lord, and I see this story, and I see that you're, you're willing to rescue Levi. And that means that you, there's hope for me. There's hope for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. And Father, Lord, let us just, if that's all that we take away from this, if there's nothing else that we learn from this and we apply to our lives, that we just walk in that today, that praise the Lord, that there's nothing I can do that would make me unlovable in your eyes. That you, Lord God, have paid for my sins by your grace you've decided to love me before I loved you, as we sang this morning. If you hadn't loved me first, I would refuse you still. But I praise the Lord that you opened my eyes to the gospel. I praise the Lord that you open our eyes to the gospel and that we can rejoice in you, and trust in you and know that you're going to see us safely home. And in that, Lord, that you would take this gospel and change us into people, Lord, who have deep, compassionate hearts for our neighbors and our friends and even those that, that we don't like so much. And that, Father, we would, we would love Pray, and we'd be willing to tell people about the glories of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that raise up a people in this church who are just so on fire for you and in love with you that they'll go out and storm the gates of hell in this community and further out, Lord. And I thank you for that. And I praise your blessing. I pray your blessing over each and every family member here. And I pray for those that are hurting physically, emotionally, and spiritually, Lord, that you would, you would be there with them and heal them and comfort them, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you're glorified in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.